Good morning, Calvary. It's good to be with you this morning. Before I get started, I'd like to thank Paul for giving me this opportunity to come up and share God's Word with you all. I'd also like to thank him for turning me into a recluse for the last three weeks. Empty water bottles and protein bar wrappers are all wrapped around me. But um, no, in all sincerity, thank you for, uh, thank you for this opportunity. We've been through a lot since February. We've seen the ascension of Jesus, the giving of the Great Commission in Acts 1-8. We've seen the events of Pentecost, and we've seen the birth of the church. We've followed Paul through three missionary journeys, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the, ends of the world, at least at, at that point. Here this morning, when we finish up chapter 20, we'll find ourselves at the end of his third missionary journey. And regarding the verses at hand, a little background, I think, would help us with this. It's about the year 57. It's about 26 years after the, the, the church was birthed at Pentecost. A severe drought and corresponding famine has happened in that area, including Jerusalem, and left many there without the very basics, including food. So the churches that Paul has planted in Macedonia and Achaia came together and pulled this significant contribution to help those who were poor there in, in Jerusalem. See Romans 15. So Paul is traveling back to Jerusalem with his contribution in hand. Additionally, he's, he's on his way there to celebrate Pentecost. So Acts chapter 20, verse 13, But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board, and we went to uh, Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came to the, the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we touched on at Samos. And the day after that, we went up Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So you see, his, him and his team, Luke included, have put into this port city of Miletus, some 30 miles south of Ephesus. And he sent for the elders of the church of Ephesus to come to him one last time. Because he wants to speak to the believers. There's a somber tone about this as he knows that he probably won't see these believers again. The Holy Spirit's already witnessed to him. That he's got imprisonments and afflictions that, him, that await him in every sea. And Jerusalem would obviously be included with that. But even if things don't go horribly wrong in Jerusalem, he's got his eyes set on Spain next via Rome. Again, see Romans 15. So application. Before we get started with the verses at hand, you'll see that most of this conversation, and some even call a sermon, is to the church leaders in Ephesus. And certainly the message given by Paul is directed to them with very specific guidance on church leadership. However, I would submit to you this morning that most of the guidance given to the leaders, to the elders of that church, has a practical application to each and every person who calls themselves a believer of Jesus. Whether we're in a leadership position or not, we're all ministers of Christ. Paul encourages us all to imitate leaders. 
He writes to the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So we are to take that to heart. And that's my hope and my prayer this morning, that the words that Paul is sharing with the Ephesians, it's for all of us. All of us can apply much of this message to our individual walk with Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you continue to do. And Lord, as we study these verses here this morning, I pray that your spirit would speak clearly through me this morning. I pray that your gospel message would be loud and clear. I pray that we would be ready to receive it, that our hearts would be prepared. prepared. Lord, open our eyes and our hearts and our needs and, and, our, and our ears to the needs around us. Lord, glorify yourself as we study your word. And I pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen. So there's several takeaways I'd like to get with before we get started. So number one, as you see how Paul breaks this all down, how are we to serve the church, both leaders and those being led? You'll see that in the first part. The second part, what's the appropriate response to Jesus and what he's done on the cross for us? That's the second part. And then the last part of this is what dangers does the church face, this very church and all churches around the world? What do we face today? So let's read a few verses and let's dive in. So... Uh, Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 21. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So question one, how are we to serve the church? Look with me again at verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Serving, that very first word that he has in, in, uh, in verse 19, comes from the root word doulos, a Greek word. And Paul uses this word oftentimes throughout his epistles. If you look at Galatians 1.10, you'll see it there. If you look at Romans 1.1, you'll see it there. And bear with me, because this is important. For most, for instance, if you look at Romans 1.1, you'll see Paul, a doulos of Christ Jesus. If you read in ESV, that'll be servant. If you're reading in NASB, that will be bondservant. And if you're reading a legacy standard Bible, that'll be slave the most proper configuration or rendering of that word truly is slave. So through the lens of a slave, a proper perspective is necessary to the Lord. So right out of the gate, Paul reminds the elders who he serves and how he serves. That he, Paul, first and foremost, served the Lord. And he does so in the capacity of a servant or a slave. He's reminding the elders that they are they are to have their first allegiance is to be, in fact, with Jesus. The point I'm making is this. Out of all of Paul's writings, all of his words, all of his ministry, all of his suffering, even his death was done so through the bondservant, or through the, through the lens of a bondservant, through the lens of a slave. He served willingly and without reservation, with much joy. 
with a singular focus, a slave who knew the supreme value of knowing Jesus. To the Corinthians, he writes, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So as we move our way through these verses this morning, understand the mindset of the apostle, that of a slave of the Most High. But before I leave that point, I want to encourage all of us to assume that same attitude. This is not graduate-level Christianity that Paul has on demonstration here today. Being a slave of the Most High is Christianity 101. It is all of our response to the Lord. We are to be a servant, a bondservant, a slave of the Most High. And I would ask us, if we would ask ourselves this morning, as we move our way through these verses, is that how I see my walk? Am I a slave of Jesus? Do I serve Jesus in that capacity? He then characterizes that service with humility. That's the first thing he says coming out of the gate. Being a servant of the Lord requires humility. Paul wants to remind the elders not to be proud of themselves, that they're leaders or that they're in positions of authority. Those who are called to lead are, in fact, chosen by the Holy Spirit. They had no input in that. The position of leadership for the church should not instill pride, but humility. And being a leader of the church is a gift of tremendous responsibility and weight, especially when you consider what Jesus gave for it. Paul will refer to that here in a little bit. What Paul is doing here is laying out his guidance for those church leaders. Paul served Jesus with humility. He understood that his relationship with Jesus all too well, and that realization led him to a posture of humility. He is encouraging the church leaders to guard themselves from pride and to adopt that same posture of humility. And this relationship that, G- that Paul had with the Lord is, is well captured, I think, in mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis writes this, In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore you yourself know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see things that are above you. He goes on. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It's better to, see your, to, it's better to forget about yourself altogether. Oftentimes I wonder, though, have we lost that sense of, of awe of God? Has God become so comfortable for us that we're not, in, we're not held in awe by Him anymore? We've gotten so familiar that God doesn't command our attention like it did for Paul. In our independent, hustling and bustling 21st century, have we traded the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for a God of our own making who is inept and has no real power in our life? Or do we worship the God that Paul worshipped? 
The point I'm making is this, is when we consider God in all of his mercy, grace, power, holiness, righteousness, and consider the lengths that Jesus went through to save us, while, by the way, we're an act of direct rebellion, the only appropriate response to God should be worship and humility. So with humility in place, he reveals more of his heart by reminding them the tears that he shed for them. A servant of God weeps for the church and for the lost. Why tears? If you look ahead there to 2031, you'll see, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And I think it's fair to say there's probably two primary reasons for the tears that Paul has. First, tears of joy. In response to those who truly receive the gospel message and turn from their ways and turn to God and live for him. And second, tears of anguish. Tears of anguish for those who reject God. To those who say no. To those who choose to live in and for this world. Should bring us all to tears. Paul loved his fellow believers. He poured his heart into the churches he planted. He withstood tremendous suffering that most of us wouldn't even be able to begin to understand. His love is often reflected through many of his epistles, but to the Thessalonians he writes this, So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because, we have, because you have become very dear to us. It's that relationship I would ask all of us to think about this morning. Do we have a love for one another like that's demonstrated here? Again, Christianity 101. This is not super Christianity. This is the love that we all should have for one another. Yes, in context, it's to the church elders. But I think you would agree that all of us should have the same kind of love. He continues by reminding the elders of their struggles he faced. A servant of the Lord will face trials and tribulations, verse 19. And while he didn't face the same kind of trials that he faced in other places, he certainly encountered the riots that we talked about, uh, I guess it was two weeks ago now in Ephesus. But he's really specifically talking about one of the most pervasive trials that any church could face. To the Corinthians, he tells them that he fought wild beasts at Ephesus. But we, we didn't study, we didn't know about that. We didn't encounter that when we studied uh, his time at Ephesus over the last few weeks. What wild beast did Paul, in, in fact, encounter? If you look down at verse 29, you'll see that he says, Savage wolves will come in among you. The Lord reflects this same warning. Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come, in, uh, come to you in sheep's clothing, being in, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. These wolves that both the Lord and Paul are speaking about are false teachers, undermining the gospel and thereby endangering the health of the church and leading its members astray. It really isn't surprising false teachers have been with us since the inception of the church. They're still with us today, maybe now more so than ever. And we'll talk more about false teaching here in just a bit. But what is Paul's response to all this? The tears, trials, and tribulations that he faced Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. A servant of the Lord boldly declares the gospel truth. Paul held nothing back. 
He withheld no exhortation, no admonition, nothing that was profitable for the church in Ephesus or anywhere for that matter. That's why we here at Calvary study Scripture the way that we do, book by book, verse by verse, even word for word, the whole counsel of God. We don't teach just the things that are easy. We teach the things that are hard as well. And Paul was encouraging the elders to do the same, to hold the gospel truth as he has done so for his entire ministry and the three years including that he spent with the Ephesians. So if I can step aside where Paul likes to talk about editorializing, the truth. The truth is under attack today. Is that fair? But it's really been under attack since the garden. Did God actually say, said the serpent to Eve, Genesis 3, 2. We've come a long way since that day. Um, the truth is now more elusive than ever. We live in a world where we've taken emotions and feelings and elevated them above fact and truth. That sentiment of emotionalism is bleeding its way into the evangelical churches across North America. That compromises the truth. It alters our walk. And regardless of the wor what the world uh, tells us today, truth is not defined by our own subjective standards. It is determined by the source of truth himself. God, and by extension, his word is the source of all truth. He is the only truth that sets men free. Amen? God's truth is so regardless of how we feel about it. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus spoke to the apostles. And later, when he's praying to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Do you think God cares about the truth? Paul's instructing the elders to declare the truth. Don't shrink back from the truth. Don't temper the truth, and don't make it more palatable. Speak God's truth to sin and darkness. But exactly what truth are we talking about here? What truth is Paul having them speak to? Look at verse 21. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The crux of the gospel is this, repentance and faith. This is, this is it. This is, this is the whole core of the message he's trying to teach the elders that we should all take to heart. To repent and have faith in Jesus is the gospel. This is the good news being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Look at the first words given to us of our Lord in the gospel of Mark. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance, that turning away from sin and self, turning to God and doing whatever He asks of us. We are to live for God and stop living for self. Faith, the other side of that coin. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So faith, we are to trust in Jesus. By faith, we look back and see the truth fulfilled with a hope we look forward to the future promises of Jesus yet to be fulfilled. Our hope is informed faith, being fully sure that which is promised, he is also able to perform, Romans 4. So how are we to serve the church? What's our response, leaders and those being led? Paul answered that question. 
reminding them to serve the Lord, first and foremost, they serve the Lord. Do so with humility. If needs be, with tears facing trials, but always boldly declaring truth, repentance, and faith. Now he moves on to the second question. What's the appropriate response to the Lord? And this is the foundation of the entire message, before and coming after. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me. In every city, the imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul knows tremendous, tremendous challenges await him. And if there are anything like the challenges behind, they'll be significant. But his response is insightful. Look again at verse 24. Not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. All things fall short when compared to the glory of God. That's a common theme from Paul. It's a common theme we should take to heart. To the Philippians. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. The supreme value. And knowing Jesus makes everything else look like rubbish. That's what he's teaching the elders. This is the foundation of his entire service. Love of Jesus. Paul valued Jesus above all things. He's not interested in living comfortably for this world and the baubles and the trinkets that it has to offer. He wasn't even interested in preserving his own life. His greatest love and desire was Jesus. So much so that he was willing to give his life for him. So the question I have for all of us, If we evaluated a day or a week of our life, we took away the things that we have to do, work, school if you're a student, we evaluated that time remaining, what would be revealed as our greatest love? Could we honestly say if you evaluated a day of our life that we spent most of our time with the Lord? Or would it be revealed that we spent most of our time on ourselves, or on those things that we want to do? But if we evaluated Paul's life, guess what would be revealed? Love of Jesus. Paul's desire to love and be loved by him was reflected in the Psalms. Psalm 63, verse 3 said, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And that love that Paul had for Christ, that we should, in fact, have for Christ, allowed him to face uncertainties. Look at verse 22. He's on his way to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen to him there. We all know what happened to, to Paul in Jerusalem, but he didn't know when, he wrote, uh, when Luke wrote this. Paul's drawing from experience. He knows that whatever it is won't be good. He's been stoned. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He's been left for dead. How was he able to face such challenges? 
And many of us have uncertainties in our life right now, right? How do we face those types of, those types of challenges? Number one, Paul was a singularly focused individual. Paul lived to finish the work that God gave him. He didn't fear death. To the Philippians, he writes, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall, not, uh, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and be with Christ, for that is far better. Death was a win for him. That would allow him to be with Jesus. Life was also a win for him. That allowed him to continue to share the gospel message. How many of us have that same sentiment? So long as he remained in this world, he was fully committed to the work that the Lord gave him. And number two, he knew he wasn't alone. The challenges he faced, he faced walking in faith with the Lord. Look what he writes to Timothy a little later on in his life. At my defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that, the, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom to be with him in glory forever and ever. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul knew the challenges he faced. He knew that he would not face those challenges alone. But to what end? What was the purpose of it all? Look at verse 24. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Grace. It's that supreme gift that believers receive that secures us from that bondage of sin, right? Grace should never, hear me now, grace should never cease to amaze us. Never should grace cease to amaze us. God is just and sinners deserve the punishment that we've earned. But God, two of the greatest words in all of, the, all of Scripture, but God, being rich in mercy and set forth a plan to free us from that calamity. The plan came to fruition on the cross. That's why we cling to Jesus, to save us from God. He paid that awful price so that we might be right. We gave him our sins. He gave us his righteousness. To the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. This is the message of Paul to the Ephesians and to you and I. A reminder of being wholly committed to Jesus. Give up everything, your will, your life, all those things you want to do and commit to Jesus. He's worth it, amen? We look back to Paul's life and ministry and we see a life of tremendous sacrifice. A life committed to a cause worthier than anything this world has to offer. A life firmly grounded in God's objective truth. We see a life full of grace and mercy. A life focused on the things eternal, not on the things of this world. We see a life that God used in mighty ways to bring light into an otherwise dark world. In short, we see a life that reflects Jesus. 
When people look at our lives, what do they see? Should they not, should they not see Jesus? For many, yes, they, should see, they, they do see Jesus. But for, for, for many, I'm afraid that if you evaluate our life, it, will look, it wouldn't look any different than the American who doesn't worship Jesus. But is this what Jesus intends? If you look ahead to the, to the Gospel of Luke, you'll see the, the Lord answering this very question. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Again, Christianity 101. Deny yourself daily and pick up your cross and follow him. When people see us, they should see the same thing they saw with the Apostle Paul. Humility, tears for the lost, persecuted, testifying to truth to everybody everywhere until we're called home. You see, as Christians, it has to be more than just about salvation, right? If it were just about salvation, at that moment of conversion, we'd be whisked away. But here we sit, a room full of us. To what end? Is it possible we were left here with a task and purpose? That we have a goal that we are left behind to accomplish. Ask yourselves this morning, every person in here, please ask yourselves, what is my task in Christ today? What is my purpose? What does the Lord intend for me? I promise you, He has an intent. Let's all take on that banner of Isaiah when He answers the Lord and says, Here I am, send me. Isaiah 6 8. So, what's the proper response to the Lord? He answers it this way Surrender. Surrender. Surrender your will, your earthly desires, your fame, your time, your money, your job, yourself and life itself if necessary. Why? To glorify God. It's all about God. It's always been about God, right? It's not about us. It's never been about us. It's about God and His grace. John Piper asked the question this way. Is your thought day in and day out to magnify Christ? Devote yourself to Christ. Live for those people who are without Christ in whatever way you can. And I pray that answer would always be yes for every person in this room. And what challenges will then that church face? His charge, his challenge to the church leaders in 25 through 38. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to, the, to uh, God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's gold, uh, silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard, it is e it, in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And we had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Paul gives four admonitions to the church leaders here in this, in this section. And he starts with verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to your flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God with which he obtained with his own blood. He starts first by advising the leaders they are to guard themselves. When Paul is speaking of guarding themselves, he's speaking of personal holiness. Robert Murray McShane, a 19th century Scottish minister, said this, what my people need from me most of all is my personal holiness. Personal holiness is a requirement to serve God. You should expect that. You should demand that out of the leaders of your church. You should demand that out of yourselves. Everybody should should uh, command personal holiness. Everybody should, should seek personal holiness. It's not just for the deacons or for the life group leaders or D group leaders or, or, or leading your family in worship or for any Christian in any setting. It's for everybody, personal holiness is. We cannot serve the Lord and have ongoing sin in the background. It doesn't work that way. If we are not right with God, all the activity we're doing won't make a bit of difference. To Timothy, he writes, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save, save both yourself and your hearers. Personal holiness is not an outward, uh, not outward action, cert, uh, stopping certain type of behaviors and starting others. It is about the heart. It's a heart change. This is the posture of a leader before God. John Owens once said this, what a minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. I submit to you what a Christian is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. Every believer, every person in this room must protect your own walk. Yes, we have that requirement from the leadership position as well. Protecting your walk requires daily Reading God's word, meditation on God's word, prayer and memorization, just to name a few. We must all keep close watching ourselves, yes? But with personal holiness intact, then Paul turns to the second part of this four list, this list of four that he gives. Elders' primary role is in shepherding is to feed the flock. In context of the church, that would be preaching and teaching and living out the Word of God each and every day. 
It is to edify the church and make it more holy for its good and for God's glory. This harks back to a conversation that Peter, after his resurrection, excuse me, Jesus, after his resurrection, had with Peter. In this conversation, Jesus tells Peter to feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. That feeding involves scripture. To Timothy, he writes, all scriptures be thou uh, by God profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. God's inspired word is inerrant and infallible. This is the food for the sheep. It teaches us who God is and who we are. It teaches about sin and redemption, justice and grace. In short, it's God's revelation of himself to us. As Paul writes to the Romans, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith. Leaders are to teach it, know it, and live it. You should demand that out of us. And tied to that in verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. If you look at verse 29, fierce wolves. What Paul is speaking of here are false teachers. Scripture over and over again condemns false teachers in the strongest language. Paul has much experience with false teaching within the churches he's recently established. False teachers in Corinth, false teachers in Galatia, and yes, eventually false teachers did come to the church of Ephesus. It is the shepherd's responsibility to guard and protect the flock from wolves, from false teachers. So whether they come from inside or outside, leaders must be ever, ever vigilant protecting against false teachers. Internally, the source of false teachers can come from multiple sources, but typically from, a, from, an, uh, from somebody in a teaching role. Typically, not always. From external sources would be social media and the internet. So as shepherds, we must be on alert Charles Jefferson wrote this, Many a minister fails as a pastor because he's not vigilant. He allows his church to be torn to pieces because he's half asleep. You know, when I was going to school, um, one of the pastors that we had to study said that of the Jehovah's Witness, the primary group of people that they prey upon is Southern Baptist. Think about that. Look around. Look to your left and your right. You are their primary food source. Why is that? Is it because we don't know the truth? We don't recognize falsehoods when we hear it. We don't recognize things like Jesus being the Archangel Michael sounds odd at best. It's easy to be led astray if we don't know the way. How do we recognize false teaching? Every person, leader or otherwise, how do we recognize false teaching? R.C. Sproul said it this way once when he was talking about false teaching. He, he was comparing recognizing false teachers to banking. He said that in the banking world, Tellers are trained into recognizing counterfeit money by training in the real thing. 
They become so intimate with the look and feel of real money, they detect false or counterfeit money easily. That, that should be the same of us. We should be able to hear false teaching as soon as we hear it. Some of it harder than others, but we should be able to hear it. If we train ourselves in God's truth individually, within our families, within our D groups, within our life groups, within the church itself, we strengthen ourselves. The entire flock is strengthened. And false teaching has a much more difficult way to find its way in. And that's what Paul intends with verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Certainly leaders are to be uh, um, students of the word. That's the context of this passage. However, we are called, all called to emulate our leaders. Each of us is to be a student of the word. This helps us to solidify our own walk with the Lord. It helps us training one another within D groups, small groups, life groups, church itself. As Paul begins to close his time with the elders, he challenges them with one last thing. Elders are to avoid compromise by protecting themselves from the love of money. Specifically in this passage, it is about money. He wants to remind them to make the first thing first, serving the Lord. During his time with the Ephesian elders, as much as possible, he worked with his own hands. He didn't, he didn't mandate any sort of payment to him. That freed their resources up so that they could, in fact, turn around and use those resources for others. Ultimately, he's showing them to be content in Jesus. He allowed nothing to compromise his witness to the church or to the lost. He endeavored to keep pure the message being delivered, Christ and him crucified. It was imperative for him, for the leaders he is speaking with, and for us. As he wrote to the Galatians, allow nothing to inhibit or compromise your walk with the Lord or your service to another. He says, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through, the love, uh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He wraps this conversation up with the elders at the church of Ephesus. The love that these believers have for one another is on clear display. They all kneel down to pray. You see their reaction. They're all weeping and embracing and kissing Paul, full of sorrow, as this would be the last time any of them would see him. John MacArthur wraps up chapter 20 this way. He said, Paul's ministry was successful because his life was right with God. He made it his priority to feed and guard the flock. He devoted himself to prayer and the ministry of his word, and he was totally free of self-interest. The result was devoted love of his people, and more important, the love of God. In short, a picture of a leader and a follower. Jesus, following Jesus and leading his church, a church that should be marked in a way that reflects Christ. And that should be us. That's a lot. We've been through a lot of verses really, really quickly. And I've left a lot on the meat, back, or meat on the bones back there. In the time remaining, though, I would emphasize one point. Please go back to verse 24 and consider this amazing verse that Paul wrote. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. That's an amazing statement. He writes a very similar statement to that in Philippians 121. 
For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This picture of Paul, a soul fully committed to Jesus, fully satisfied in the cause of Christ. He was all in. But what's interesting, if you rendered Philippians 1.21 accurately, there's no is there. For me to live, Christ. One commentator writes this of Paul. For Paul, life was to know Christ, to worship Christ, to adore Christ, surrender to Christ, submit to Christ, walk with Christ, fellowship with Christ, obey Christ, serve with Christ. Paul's whole life was Christ. His only priority, Christ. He is our master. We are his slaves, and we are to follow wherever he leads. The greatest gain that we could ever have, being with Christ. The way, the truth, and the life. So I, I, the question I leave you with this morning is, who do we serve? And what would we give up for Jesus? You see, Jesus is not satisfied with a part of our life. He wants the whole thing. He will not accept the leftovers. Jesus did not die on the cross so we could feel better about ourselves and go on living our life as if nothing's happened. He's worth infinitely more than that. Amen? I leave you with one last quote. C.S. Lewis says this, the, the Christian way is, is different. It's harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money or so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment the natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here or a branch there. I want the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it. I want the whole tooth out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent as well as those things that you think are wicked. The whole outfit I will give you a new self instead. I will, in fact, give you myself. My own will shall become your will. Paul's heart was one fully committed of Jesus. What of us? Can we truly say, as Paul said, for me to live Christ? I'm going to pray for us as Patrick and his folks come up to uh, close us out. And as I do, after we get done, for those who, who want to pray, please come up and uh, pray here at the stage, at the altar. For those who don't know Jesus, or those who are unsure, who have questions, Now's the time. Ask the question. Charles, Reagan, and myself will be up here. If you have any questions, please come up. If you have any convictions, don't let them go unsaid. Please come up. If not now, when? Now's the time. Let's pray. 
Father God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Father, I pray for every, room, every person in this room that we could say for, for me to live Christ. And Lord, you paid such a tremendous price for us. You gave a sacrifice for us that we cannot even begin to fathom. You suffered a tremendous loss for us that is beyond our ability. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would convict and move people this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the need around us. Shake us from our stupor or awaken us from our half-sleep and let us see the need that is around us. Lord, and I pray that you would allow us then to move. I pray, Lord, that you would allow us then to share and be that light in the darkness. I pray, Lord, that you would make much of yourself. Let this church, like Calvary Baptist Church, be a church of sacrifice, selfless service, of willingly putting ourselves in uncertain situations for your good, for our good, excuse me, in your glory. I pray, Lord, that everything that we do, everything that we say, even everything that we think, Lord, will glorify you. Lord, and I pray for all these things in Christ's name. Amen.